0: book 2 chapter 14 of the house of mirth this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by elizabeth Clett the house of mirth by edith wharton book 2 chapter 14 the next morning rose mild and bright with a promise of summer in the air the sunlight slanted joyously down Lily street, mellowed the blistered house-front, gilded the paintless railings of the doorstep, and struck prismatic glories from the panes of her darkened window. When such a day coincides with the inner mood, there is intoxication in its breath, and Selden, hastening along the street through the squalor of its morning confidences, felt himself thrilling with a youthful sense of adventure. He had cut loose from the familiar shores of habit— and launched himself on uncharted seas of emotion. All the old tests and measures were left behind, and his course was to be shaped by new stars. That course, for the moment, led merely to Miss Bart's boarding-house, but its shabby doorstep had suddenly become the threshold of the untried. As he approached, he looked up at the triple row of windows, wondering boyishly which one of them was hers. It was nine o'clock, and the house, being tenanted by workers— already showed an awakened front to the street. He remembered afterward having noticed that only one blind was down. He noticed, too, that there was a pot of pansies on one of the window-sills, and at once concluded that the window must be hers. It was inevitable that he should connect her with the one touch of beauty in the dingy scene. Nine o'clock was an early hour for a visit, but Selden had passed beyond all such conventional observances. He only knew that he must see Lily Bart at once. He had found the word he meant to say to her— and it could not wait another moment to be said. It was strange that it had not come to his lips sooner, that he had let her pass from him the evening before without being able to speak it. But what did that matter, now that a new day had come? It was not a word for twilight, but for the morning. Selden ran eagerly up the steps and pulled the bell, and even in his state of self-absorption it came as a sharp surprise to him that the door should open so promptly. It was still more of a surprise to see, as he entered— that it had been opened by Gertie Farish, and that behind her, in an agitated blur, several other figures ominously loomed. "'Lawrence,' Gertie cried in a strange voice, "'how could you get here so quickly?' And the trembling hand she laid on him seemed instantly to close about his heart. He noticed the other faces, vague with fear and conjecture. He saw the landlady's imposing bulk sway professionally toward him. But he shrank back, putting up his hand— while his eyes mechanically mounted the steep black walnut stairs, up which he was immediately aware that his cousin was about to lead him. A voice in the background said that the doctor might be back at any minute, and that nothing upstairs was to be disturbed. Someone else exclaimed, "'It was the greatest mercy!' Then Selden felt that Gerty had taken him gently by the hand, and that they were to be suffered to go up alone. In silence they mounted the three flights, and walked along the passage to a closed door. Gerty opened the door, and Selden went in after her. Though the blind was down, the irresistible sunlight poured a tempered golden flood into the room, and in its light, Selden saw a narrow bed along the wall, and on the bed, with motionless hands and calm, unrecognizing face, the semblance of Lily Bart. That it was her real self, every pulse in him ardently denied. Her real self had lain warm on his heart but a few hours earlier— what had he to do with this estranged and tranquil face, which, for the first time, neither paled nor brightened at his coming? Gertie, strangely tranquil, too, with the conscious self-control of one who has ministered to much pain, stood by the bed, speaking gently, as if transmitting a final message. The doctor found a bottle of chloral. She had been sleeping badly for a long time, and she must have taken an overdose by mistake. There is no doubt of that— no doubt. There will be no question. He has been very kind. I told him that you and I would like to be left alone with her, to go over her things before any one else comes. I know it is what she would have wished. Selden was hardly conscious of what she said. He stood looking down on the sleeping face which seemed to lie like a delicate, impalpable mask over the living lineaments he had known. He felt that the real Lily was still there, close to him, yet invisible and inaccessible— and the tenuity of the barrier between them mocked him with a sense of helplessness. There had never been more than little impalpable barrier between them, and yet he had suffered it to keep them apart. And now, though it seemed slighter and frailer than ever, it had suddenly hardened to adamant, and he might beat his life out against it in vain. He had dropped on his knees beside the bed, but a touch from Gertie aroused him. He stood up, and as their eyes met, he was struck by the extraordinary light in his cousin's face. "'You understand what the doctor has gone for. He has promised that there shall be no trouble. But of course the formalities must be gone through, and I asked him to give us time to look through her things first. He nodded, and she glanced about the small bare room. "'It won't take long,' she concluded. "'No, it won't take long,' he agreed." She held his hand in hers a moment longer, and then, with a last look at the bed, moved silently toward the door. On the threshold she paused to add, "'You will find me downstairs if you want me.' Selden roused himself to detain her. "'But why are you going? She would have wished—' Gertie shook her head with a smile. "'No. This is what she would have wished.' And as she spoke, a light broke through Selden's stony misery— and he saw deep into the hidden things of love. The door closed on Gertie, and he stood alone with the motionless sleeper on the bed. His impulse was to return to her side, to fall on his knees, and rest his throbbing head against the peaceful cheek on the pillow. They had never been at peace together, they two, and now he felt himself drawn downward into the strange, mysterious depths of her tranquility. But he remembered Gertie's warning words— He knew that, though time had ceased in this room, its feet were hastening relentlessly toward the door. Gertie had given him this supreme half-hour, and he must use it as she willed. He turned and looked about him, sternly compelling himself to regain his consciousness of outward things. There was very little furniture in the room. The shabby chest of drawers was spread with a lace cover, and set out with a few gold-topped boxes and bottles, a rose-colored pincushion— a glass tray strewn with tortoiseshell hairpins. He shrank from the poignant intimacy of these trifles, and from the blank surface of the toilet mirror above them. These were the only traces of luxury, of that clinging to the minute observance of personal seemliness, which showed what her other renunciations must have cost. There was no other token of her personality about the room, unless it showed itself in the scrupulous neatness of the scant articles of furniture, a washing-stand, two chairs, a small writing-desk, and the little table near the bed. On this table stood the empty bottle and glass, and from these also he averted his eyes. The desk was closed, but on its slanting lid lay two letters which he took up. One bore the address of a bank, and as it was stamped and sealed, Selden, after a moment's hesitation, laid it aside. On the other letter he read Gus Trenner's name, and the flap of the envelope was still ungummed. Temptation leapt on him like the stab of a knife— He staggered under it, steadying himself against the desk. Why had she been writing to Trenner? Writing, presumably, just after their parting on the previous evening. The thought unhallowed the memory of that last hour, made a mock of the word he had come to speak, and defiled even the reconciling silence upon which it fell. He felt himself flung back on all the ugly uncertainties from which he thought he had cast loose for ever. After all, what did he know of her life— only as much as she had chosen to show him, and measured by the world's estimate. How little that was! By what right, the letter in his hand seemed to ask, by what right was it he who now passed into her confidence through the gate which death had left unbarred? His heart cried out that it was by right of their last hour together, the hour when she herself had placed the key in his hand. Yes. But what if the letter to Trenor had been written afterward? He put it from him with sudden loathing, and setting his lips, addressed himself resolutely to what remained of his task. After all, that task would be easier to perform, now that his personal stake in it was annulled. He raised the lid of the desk, and saw within it a check-book and a few packets of bills and letters, arranged with the orderly precision which characterized all her personal habits. He looked for the letters first, because it was the most difficult part of the work. They proved to be few and unimportant, but among them he found— with a strange commotion of the heart—the note he had written her the day after the bride's entertainment. "'When may I come to you?' His words overwhelmed him with a realization of the cowardice which had driven him from her at the very moment of attainment. Yes, he had always feared his fate, and he was too honest to disown his cowardice now, for had not all his old doubts started to life again at the mere sight of Trenner's name? He laid the note in his card-case, folding it away carefully— as something made precious by the fact that she had held it so. Then, growing once more aware of the lapse of time, he continued his examination of the papers. To his surprise, he found that all the bills were receipted. There was not an unpaid account among them. He opened the cheque-book, and saw that, the very night before, a cheque of ten thousand dollars from Mrs. Peniston's executors had been entered in it. The legacy, then, had been paid sooner than Gertie had led him to expect. But, turning another page or two— he discovered with astonishment that, in spite of this recent accession of funds, the balance had already declined to a few dollars. A rapid glance at the stubs of the last checks, all of which bore the dates of the previous day, showed that between four or five hundred dollars of the legacy had been spent in the settlement of bills, while the remaining thousands were comprehended in one check, made out, at the same time, to Charles Augustus Trenor. Selden laid the book aside— and sank into the chair beside the desk. He leaned his elbows on it, and hid his face in his hands. The bitter waters of life surged high about him. Their sterile taste was on his lips. Did the check to Trenor explain the mystery, or deepen it? At first his mind refused to act. He felt only the taint of such a transaction between a man like Trenor and a girl like Lily Bart. Then, gradually, his troubled vision cleared. Old hints and rumors came back to him and out of the very insinuations he had feared to probe, he constructed an explanation of the mystery. It was true, then, that she had taken money from Trenor. But true also, as the contents of the little desk declared, that the obligation had been intolerable to her, and that, at the first opportunity, she had freed herself from it, though the act left her face to face with bare, unmitigated poverty. That was all he knew—all he could hope to unravel of the story The mute lips on the pillow refused him more than this. Unless, indeed, they had told him the rest in the kiss they had left upon his forehead. Yes, he could now read into that farewell all that his heart craved to find there. He could even draw from it courage not to accuse himself for having failed to reach the height of his opportunity. He saw that all the conditions of life had conspired to keep them apart— since his very detachment from the external influences which swayed her had increased his spiritual fastidiousness, and made it more difficult for him to live and love uncritically. But at least he had loved her, had been willing to stake his future on his faith in her, and if the moment had been fated to pass from them before they could seize it, he saw now that, for both, it had been saved whole out of the ruin of their lives. It was this moment of love— this fleeting victory over themselves, which had kept them from atrophy and extinction, which, in her, had reached out to him in every struggle against the influence of her surroundings, and in him had kept alive the faith that now drew him penitent and reconciled to her side. He knelt by the bed and bent over her, draining their last moment to its lees, and in the silence there passed between them the word which made all, clear. End of the House of Mirth by Edith Wharton